You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, and we're live, making sure that uh, we keep a finger on the pulse. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Sister Susan Connolly. She's going to give me an update, or you and I, an update on the Bernard Kaliri update, uh, Kaliri case, which is in camera, and. Um, it's another example of how things are proceeding behind the uh, curtain of COVID. And uh, it's uh, fascinating. Last night I listened to an incredibly f- uh, amazing uh, webinar by Lockdown to Zero. It came it came mainly from uh, uh, Sydney, New South Wales, but uh, there, were spe- there were speakers from a variety of places and there were listeners from around the country. And it was highlighting the uh, the blanket uh, effect of uh, the um, press conferences that uh, Berejiklian, did I say it correctly, Gladys Berejiklian uh, has been doing uh, on the ABC and uh, obviously on other stations. Uh, 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 as the COVID situation in Sydney is just go, running amok um, and the predominant message appears to be live with the virus targeting particular suburbs and uh, that it's actually individuals' fault because they're not complying. But uh, it was fascinating to listen to the discussion around the uh, what's going on there and uh, a fight for... Uh, the law, I mean, it's a class issue, basically, where you've got uh, uh, business class and uh, uh, the LMP governments completely uh, uh, obsessed with the economy and refusing to actually, or maybe they're incompetent, maybe they're just unable to actually manage uh, and they shouldn't be given the job to uh, manage anything. Uh, we've just listened to, if you were listening to Stick Together, you're listening to something that's been brewing and happening for quite a number of years, the death, the increased death toll of uh, uh, truck drivers. Now, you'd think that truck drivers who were so important to an economy that's become tied to uh, truck uh, deliveries, freight deliveries using trucks because they uh, stopped using rail because of the business interests that are in big trucking firms. And that's another story in itself. But you'd think that they would be able to 
be looked after. You'd think that they were essential. You'd think that uh, the business about the market being able to uh, uh, – arrange things in an equitable manner because of uh, supply and demand would mean that those workers were being looked after properly and it was a regulated industry. But no, no, of course not. And as we get on and on and on into this, there's a realisation that actually we have a system that's not working for the benefit of the overall population. And now, of course, this is uh, rank socialism, I suppose, but uh, the the fact that uh, even the system that we have can actually do so much better, uh, it has become completely apparent because of the uh, weasel way that we have uh, federal government and LNP federal government unable to actually do its job. And so this is the focus of the program today. So we're going to talk to Sister Susan Connolly about this, um, about how there's this misuse of uh, the um, legal system in order to uh, uh, cover the um, outrageous uh, behaviour of the Liberals in in cahoots with big business, Woodside, in order to get contracts and uh, resources, natural resources, out of the hands of the natural owners, which are the East Timorese. So this is what that particular court case is about. So we're going to follow that up. We're going to uh, hopefully get on to Dr. Carl Mullen, who didn't have his phone on last week, but who is um, an insurance, uh, uh, a director of science and systems at Climate Risk, and he's going to talk about how there's insurance challenges that emerge as climate change increases. Now, of course, uh, the LMP business uh, uh, cohort have constantly been talked about as being, you know, the best, the best managers of uh, the economy. But of course, climate change is something that they seem incapable of dealing with and in fact our Prime Minister stands at the podium and straight out lies. So there you go. Uh, So we thought we'd talk business with Carl Mellon on on climate. Uh, If I've got enough time I really want to play something from the Lockdown to Zero uh, webinar last night because it's completely uh, new and fresh. We've got This is the Week That Was and then we're going to talk to Fiona McLeod. Now Fiona McLeod has just put out, she's an incredibly erudite person really. She's uh, written a uh, piece for the Monash University Publishing uh, called um, Easy Lies and Influence and uh, she is, it's part of their uh, In the National Interest series. It's not long, it's about 98 pages, so it's an, it's an easy read. And if you want to know about the depths of the corrupt system that has been developed over the last uh, years of the federal government that we've had and will have to do incredible levels of work to uh, to fix up all the uh, various pieces of damage that they've done to our system, uh, then stay tuned for the last part of the program because uh, she's uh, given she'll give us an understanding of the various rorts and corruptions that have happened and also why it actually matters that uh, even within the system that we live, we have plenty of checks and balances which are being poo-pooed by the terrible 
the terrible types who are sitting at the top at the moment who really are just fleecing everybody and feathering their own nests. Well, there you go. That's Solidarity Breakfast for you this morning. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Look on your way. What can I say? You feel the And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And as I promised, we've got uh, Sister Susan Connolly on the line. G'day, Susan. How are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks, Annie. Hope you're the same. Yeah, yeah, I am the same because I do a bit bit of a bike ride to get to the station. And uh, when it's dark and there's nobody around and there's COVID, it's sort of a blissful experience. <laughs> yes, every cloud is a silver lining, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, tell me, uh, you're uh, um, one of the uh, people who are ardent supporters of Brother Kaliri, and uh, do you want to give my listeners a little bit of an understanding of the uh, court case that he is being having, this gruelling court case and uh, its uh, secret nature? Yes, and it really is a... Uh, a terrible hit in the face to the Australian people who are known worldwide for claiming to be fair and, you know, honourable and all that sort of thing. Well, what's happening to Bernard Cleary is the absolute um, opposite of that. Uh, Now, Bernard uh, has um, had an appeal recently, uh, mainly, I believe, against the uh, excessive secrecy under which his prosecution is being conducted. I mean, nobody knows anything. People go into the court and they're there and everybody comes in and then, you know, it's, everybody's told to leave because, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, oh, you know, it's terribly, terribly secret. Now, um, uh, we don't know what the outcome of that appeal is yet. Maybe it will come up in a, um, a couple of weeks, I'm not sure. But his actual trial will be held in the first half of next year, I believe. That's what I understand. And he is determined to have a jury trial, and that is his right. Uh, But um, thank goodness there are a few high flyers on his side. I mean, John Hewson, for one, good on John Hewson. But also Senator Rex Patrick from... um, uh, South Australia is um, f- fantastic, and so are a few others, uh, some of the independents. Now, uh, Rex Patrick has used parliamentary privilege numerous times, and the latest was in the last fortnight where he has called for, um, uh, again, calling for the prosecution to be dropped. But this time he was uh, claiming that the Australia's spying on Timor Leste in 2004 was these are his words, neither legal 
nor initiated properly. And um, he, uh, it, it appears that John Howard, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, could well be subpoenaed to come to the trial. Now, actually, nobody is really suggesting uh, that John Howard really had anything to do with this. The buck seems to stop very much on the desk of the uh, Foreign Minister at the time, Alexander Downer. Now, um, so, well, I don't know that Downer will ever be called or whether he would agree. But, but... Um, uh, well, the, pe- the people that actually benefited, of course, would, were Woodside. Ah, well, this is right, you know, so so in bed with the big companies, this is it. And Woodside, well, really, I mean, everything, the, the, the great dollar, you know, rules all, doesn't it, really? And you, you, you sort of, in a sense, you're sort of powerless against these people, these faceless people. So it's people like Rex Patrick who will get up there and use every... Um, available means under our parliamentary system to try and get at the truth. Uh, He should be congratulated. People ought to get on and ring his office and say, good on you, Rex, we need your voice. Uh, Now, one of the things that Rex is asking for is um, uh, that, um, that, well, he's always saying drop the prosecutions for sure, but... He's wondering how it came to be that Alexander Downer was able to uh, go ahead and um, issue the order to spy. It appears that a single minister with other ministers are able to give written directives to spy. Now, um, is there such a record of a, of a written order like that. That's what needs to be said. Now, part of the secrecy of this whole thing is these men put in freedom of information requests and they get something back that's practically totally black. You know, this is really, really wrong. It's shocking. Yeah, now, so, so what, you're, what you're really saying is that uh, uh, federal governments or particular political interests and uh, financial interests are actually subverting the, uh, uh, our democracy, basically. Well, at base, that is. But unfortunately, with the, the change of laws that have happened since 9-11, we, we're sort of changing the systems, or the parliament is changing the systems that were set up to protect uh, the people from this type of thing. I mean, laws are supposed to protect. That's what they're supposed to do. You don't cave into these to these you know, companies. But, of course, if, if your bottom line is money all the time, you do cave in, you know. But, well, they're, because they're, t- they're talking about national interests. Everything, the coverall is all national interest. But the thing is that if, if uh, and they're trying to use that as the reason for incredible secrecy to the point where even Kaliri's uh, legal team aren't allowed to see legal documents. Well, that was the case. See, this is the this is the insidious nature of this whole thing. I couldn't categorically say to you now what I might have been able to say three months ago, because nobody knows. This is this is the deviousness of secrecy in a legal system that is supposed to be fair and transparent. Uh, and look, anybody uh, really and uh, it should be able to. But this is not me talking, I've read this somewhere. Anybody should be able to walk into a courtroom and see what is going on. Uh, that's, our, that's the basis of our, our, 
our fair, uh, supposedly fair system. But in this case, as you rightly say, this is to protect economic interests. And what shocked me really when I read more about this was that unfortunately um, some of our laws have been changed in order to allow governments to spy for economic interests. Now, look, every nation spies. We know that. Everybody spies and everybody else is so ridiculous. We're human beings. But to spy, to be able to spy for economic interests and to stretch that to be able to spy on an impoverished nation like Timor that was just coming out of... Look, I saw it with my own eyes. I was there in 2004, like I was there from 1996 and I was there right up until 2014. I've seen firsthand over and over again the abject poverty of those people. And do you know, Annie, I always say this, I never met a beggar. Not once did I meet a beggar. They are such proud and independent people and we've just taken them over. Now, look, I want to get on to one other thing, or a couple. Um, look, um, uh, Labor... Um, uh, see, Rex Patrick has called for a uh, an inquiry. Uh, now, Labor voted against it, and we're all shock horror. But their reason for voting against it is that they say the um, the, the legal and constitutional committee or something uh, is not the right um, it's not the right uh, avenue to do this they're promising if they get into power that they will change the intelligence services act to give more power to the existing uh, pjcis you know the parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security that needs more teeth to be able to investigate actual instances. They can't do that at the moment. I mean, what a stupid thing. So that's what Labor's position is. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I don't know. But that's the reason they did not uh, support uh, Rex Patrick's call for an inquiry last week. And, of course, they're all still... uh, Everybody's still saying, why did Christian Porter rush to prosecution as soon as he became the foreign minister? That's another thing that needs to be answered. But do you know, Annie, look, I want to just say one thing that was in an article, I think it was in The Guardian, God bless The Guardian, we should all be subscribing to The Guardian. Uh, One of the things that was said was that that when Timor became free, uh, well, when they became independent in 2002... Australia realised that the various factions in Timor that are always at each other's throat, like everywhere in the world, they were actually united in their desire to achieve a maritime boundary between us, us, uh, them and Australia. But because Australia wanted a greater share of the revenue for itself, it set about fomenting division within Timor-Leste. When I saw that, oh, I that's fascinating. Peed. But they also, but they also uh, withdrew from the um, uh, the uh, the system. Oh yes, the system that they'd actually, yeah, yeah. So, so all this, all this stuff about them being the pinnacle of law and order is uh, oh, all crap. Oh, oh, play, yeah. please, yes. Two months before independence, yeah, we yeah. withdrew from Calculated. the international loan in, 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 really and truly, and that was about the boundary. But what I hadn't, like, I mean, I'm a sort of optimistic person, and I mean, I, I'm a, I love being an Australian in a sense, really. But uh, now, 
We're not, nobody is going to find evidence of government documents which uh, say, you know, let's go and foment, this, uh, foment division. Mm. But what needs to be looked at is what the strategies were. Like, who, who, which Timorese were flown to Australia and um, um, had meetings and in the absence of into, other ones? Yeah. Who were given scholarships? Oh. Who, who was, um, you know, where was... Uh, yeah. This reminded me, of course, of what the Indonesians did. I was just going to say. Just before they were going to invade Timor. You get in there and you work on the weaknesses of that. Isn't that despicable? I, I just, it is just so despicable. Uh, so, I, as I say, the only, among the best lights of this, of course, are Bernard Caleri himself. That man deserves the Order of Australia. Honest to God, is that. He is so, he is so determined that truth must prevail. And that's what he's done all his life, really. And then you get people like Rex Patrick and others as well. Look, Sterling Griffith's been real good. And um, look, some of the politicians are great. Graham Parrott in Britain, in um, in Queensland. And I'm sorry some of the others escaped me because I, I know your time's limited, Annie. But, you know, the Times of London last week, had the most devastating article about Australia. Look, talk about, talk about toe curling. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh to read it, Bernard Lagan, you know, from a uh, correspondent in the Times of London. Mm. Oh, Australia, it says, Australia is exacting retribution after a shabby act of spying against a fledgling nation. And this was exposed by the whistleblower. Well, they weren't really whistleblowers, but we go along with that. Uh, look, it's just, um, it's All right, just, so we're going to have to keep it. We have to move on, but uh, Susan, okay, we'll we rely on you to keep us informed. Well, yes, okay. There's a petition up. Look up Bernard Caleri petition and sign it. We've got more than 60,000 60, signatures at the moment. Good. So maybe more people can sign on. Thanks, mate. Okay, Annie. Good on you. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. So our final speaker tonight is Eleanor Morley. She's an editor of Red Flag Newspaper, which is a campaigning socialist newspaper. And in the media dominated by Rupert Murdoch, Red Flag has consistently argued for an elimination strategy. Eleanor has been central to commissioning the various articles from workers in New South Wales, such as the Bunnings workers, such as the health worker article that was referenced earlier, and very recently, an article from a Coles worker. Eleanor is a co-founder of the Lockdown to Zero campaign. All right. Thanks, Moira. Um, Also, thanks to Shannon, Dr. Bari and... Uh, and our anonymous um, Bunnings worker for your own speeches. It's really refreshing to hear uh, those clear arguments that just cut straight through uh, the rubbish that we're forced to listen to every day in the press conference conferences, uh, forced to read in the media uh, and all the rest of it. So as the other speakers um, have already more or less outlined, uh, we're really living on a knife edge here in New South Wales right now. And it's also putting the entire country, uh, the entire country at risk of suffering a terrible, terrible uh, fate in this pandemic, which is well and truly avoidable. So this insistence that we need to learn to live with the virus, we hear it every day now, 
from Gladys Berejiklian, we hear it from the New South Wales Liberals, and we're starting to, uh, to hear it from the federal government as well. What this really means is that they are preparing the ground for more people to start dying from the virus. And that's what we need to learn. We need to learn to accept deaths. We need to learn to accept serious illness. We need to learn to accept long COVID uh, and all the rest of it. So it's really wonderful to see like more than 240 people here tonight uh, here saying, no, we won't accept this. Uh, we want to fight for an alternative. So first of all, I think it is really important to reiterate that we did not need to be here. That's true, firstly, also on a global scale. Um, that kind of gets lost uh, in the wash these days. So if leaders elsewhere around the world had put the health and safety and, and lives of ordinary people first, the virus could have been eliminated everywhere, especially uh, because it first really hit the developed world. So countries that uh, you know, more than definitely uh, have the resources available uh, to implement serious, uh, serious health strategies. But instead, what we have seen uh, is the priorities of global capitalism, that is profits first, keep economies open, keep international travel running, keep businesses open. Uh, that has all allowed COVID to take hold in the community in a big way, uh, and also kill possibly up to 10 million people. The official figures say 4 million. Uh, leading epidemiologists are saying that's rubbish. It's probably more like 10 million. And that's just in the first 18 months of this pandemic that currently has no end in sight. And so while up until this point, we've, uh, we've managed to avoid the same kind of carnage here in Australia, that same priority, profits before health, profits before workers' lives, that dominates the logic here too. And it certainly has, uh, in this outbreak right now, uh, in Sydney. So a few examples of this. First is that um, our healthcare systems are totally, totally unprepared for a pandemic. Already before, um, before COVID even hit the scene, uh, hospitals are, uh, were operating at maximum capacity. There were bed shortages, there are staff shortages absolutely everywhere in the healthcare system because governments have consistently uh, refused to fund them properly. And I encourage people to check out the article that Moira, uh, Moira mentioned earlier that we printed in Red Flag um, that a nurse uh, here in Sydney wrote about the, the serious issues uh, facing the healthcare system. But now we're already more than 18 months into this pandemic um, and absolutely nothing has changed, which is an, another absolute indictment uh, on the people who run this country. So there has been no rapid expansion of healthcare. Uh, and like others have talked about tonight, the system's already squeezed, let alone what might possibly happen uh, as cases uh, continue to escalate. So they've not put uh, massive amounts of funding into expanding healthcare, building emergency hospitals, all the kind of stuff we, we hope we won't need, but we should prepare for uh, nonetheless. There's also a whole bunch of other ways that they've re refused to prepare in the last 18 months, like the quarantine systems uh, that Shannon talked about. We should remember that COVID has been eliminated from Australia multiple times. This is not some pipe dream fantasy that socialists have just uh, dreamt up overnight. COVID has actually been eliminated from, from the community here in Australia multiple times, but it keeps coming back in through a quarantine system that is not fit for purpose, that experts everywhere for months and months have said, this is a joke, 
Uh, this is also like a total abrogation of human rights. You're forcing by law people to go into these hotels, they go into them healthy, and they come out of them with COVID, uh, and then they spread it uh, through the communities. I was reading um, earlier this week about the um, uh, Howard's refugee policy 20 years ago, and in two months' time, the Howard government managed to set up detention prisons uh, on Manus Island uh, and Nauru. That was in just two months' time. So the capabilities are well and truly there, uh, but the political will is not. All right, then next. So once this outbreak started, Berejiklian has as much as possible avoided um, hurting business interests. She's cut every single corner. And this has meant that necessary health measures uh, just have not been taken. So we know that hard and fast lockdowns work. Uh, they have elsewhere uh, in this country when implemented. Uh, but that's not what we got in Sydney. First, there was nothing for a couple of weeks. Then there was a partial lockdown of some LGAs, as though COVID knows how to respect the boundaries of a postcode. And then when that was extended to the whole city, businesses were still allowed to decide whether or not they were essential. For every single business, making money, making profits is essential. So unsurprisingly, uh, most of them decided to stay open. And there were like ridiculous examples of this on social media, like luxury stores being, um, being open, like niche um, uh, homeware stores, and stuff like that being open. None of this uh, is essential. And now today, eight weeks into this lockdown, two months, two months into it, things that are not necessary, workplaces that are not necessary are still open just so the people that run them uh, can, can continue to make money. And the fact that they have made this announcement today about some of those big retailers like Bunnings, like Officeworks, uh, in those uh, 12 LGAs um, th that they announced they're being shut down, is, is them admitting that this actually is an essential health measure. Uh, and we should continue to point out it's something that they should have done two months ago. And it's something that they should be doing across all of New South Wales. The targeted LGA strategy is patently not working, uh, yet they continue with it. But more than that, you know, some workplaces are essential. You can't actually shut down absolutely everything in the economy. People still need to eat. People still need to access healthcare uh, and so on. But nothing is being done to make those genuinely essential workplaces safe. And I think that unless this happens, it is very, very unlikely uh, that we will see case numbers start to go down. So uh, in Red Flag, we just published an article by a Coles worker uh, who detailed a number of very obvious measures that could be taken uh, to make supermarkets safer. So things like making sure there's not too many workers uh, who have to cross shifts with, it, with each other uh, at any point, things like that, simple things uh, that have not been done uh, by the people who run uh, who run Coles. All they have done is follow the government's indoor mask mandate and have what are essentially optional QR codes uh, to check in at, um, at entrances. They haven't done any of the other measures because it would cost them money. And across Sydney, we've not seen similar moves uh, that were made in Melbourne last year um, across essential workplaces. So Things like manufacturing. Some manufacturing obviously needs to continue, but production should be reduced 
uh, so that fewer workers can be on site at any one time. Shifts, shifts should be organised into teams so you don't have an entire workforce uh, crossing over with each other uh, every single week. Like Dr Bari went through, proper ventilation should not should have 18 months ago, but now definitely should be installed uh, in absolutely every single workplace. But all of this would cost money, so they're not doing it. And then uh, in addition to that, the government is doing nothing to compel them to. So this is why we're seeing more cases and we, we will continue to do so uh, unless something changes. Next, someone wrote earlier that um, providing economic support to people is an essential public health measure. I absolutely agree with that. People, many people just simply cannot stay at home uh, if it means foregoing a wage. So we need proper income support to all workers. We need uh, the rate of job seeker uh, to be lifted so that no one's living in poverty throughout this pandemic. Again, if none of this happens, uh, then we're not going to get it under control. But instead of doing any of this, uh, Berejiklian, Kerry Chant, Hazard, the rest of them, they get up there every day. They insist that their settings are right, even though they're then later changed. They insist the settings are right. And instead, they bang on about compliance. I thought that the press conference yesterday uh, was really, really exposing of this strategy where, again, Berejiklian gets up and just compliance, compliance, people are breaking the rules, people have got to stop breaking the rules. And then the Deputy, uh, uh, Deputy Chief Health Officer gets up and admits, no, the way that transmission is happening is that people who are going to work catch it and then they bring it home uh, and spread it through their uh, spread it to their family. So that's clearly where transmission is taking place. It's not by people like going for walks in the wrong area or just visiting their friends or anything like that. Um, and I think that's also what what the strategy of uh, dialing up the cops, dialing up the military presence is all about. It's to feed this false idea that the issue is compliance. Uh, rather than the issue being actually regulating business interests to shut down more of the economy, make the other ones safer, to stop the uh, to stop the, the spread. So we can't actually police our way out of this crisis. Okay, so where have these priorities, these priorities of profits got us? Well, the most dangerous moment of the pandemic in Australia so far, that's obvious. An eight-week lockdown that's just been extended for another six weeks uh, you know, I, I agree, people don't like lockdowns. We shouldn't have had to be in, this, be in this situation in the first place. But now, but it's not working. It's not working because they've botched it and they continue to do so. We've got a push to send children and teachers back to school, which is absolutely criminal. It is endangering th those children, it is endangering teachers and it is endangering the families um, of all those people. Yet the government continues to push uh, we want to get them back uh, into classrooms. And then also, what do we have? We have a potentially devastating crisis among Aboriginal communities uh, in Western New South Wales. And I think this is really, really frightening. In Dubbo, they have two or three ICU beds. That's it. Walgett, none. The best you're going to find is in Dubbo, two or three ICU beds. There are serious uh, pre-existing health conditions in these areas because of existing state racism towards Aboriginal communities, 
which makes this one of the most vulnerable, uh, vulnerable populations. And as we have learned from the UK, from America, elsewhere, it is the most vulnerable people out there who suffer the most from COVID, who have the highest death rates, uh, the highest rates of hospitalisation, serious illness and all the rest of it. And we're on the, like the precipice of that kind of crisis unrolling in those communities, probably not even on the precipice. It's happening right now. Cases are going up. People out there are going to die because the government refused to shut Sydney down uh, in the way that they should have. All right, to conclude, um, so obviously we are in a concerning kind of terrifying situation right now, but I think it is really, really important that we don't give up. While politicians are kind of more and more clamping down on now we need to learn to live uh, with it, like Shannon said, there is still a debate raging in society. They have not won the debate. So more and more... Um, health officials, epidemiologists, um, health experts, um, they're starting to speak up almost every day now. There's a new opinion piece in the papers um, of people from that community saying, hang on a sec, we definitely still can get this under control. We definitely should not be letting this virus rip. We definitely can, can and should try and contain it. And I think we all need to continue uh, to add our voices to that. So one more thing I would add is that we want to support uh, people, workers who are fighting their own bosses uh, for health and safety in their workplaces. I heard a story yesterday uh, that a Woolies warehouse uh, in Western Sydney, um, the, there was a, a positive case in that workplace, but the boss said, I don't care, keep working. The workers in that warehouse, they all went out. They said, we're not going back in there until you shut it down and do a deep clean. They won, they all got sent home on full pay and overnight that, that place was properly clean. So that's just one example. Uh, but the more of that right now, the better. And we should support uh, every single one uh, of those actions. But also we want to keep fighting the government. Even though we're in pretty hard conditions right now, like normally fighting the government for us means hitting the streets. It means protesting. The kind of stuff we can't really do right now in lockdown. Like I'm a socialist because I think ordinary people, I think workers... Uh, have the power to change the world. And despite being in difficult conditions right now, we're not going to give up and we're going to keep fighting. So really encourage everyone here tonight to get involved in that fight, but also reach out to other people you know, reach out to people that you work with, reach out to friends, family, get them to sign on to the statement, get them along to the next, uh, the next event uh, and get everyone involved. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. 
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we were just listening to Eleanor Morley, who's one of the editors for Red Flag. She was at the uh, meeting last night uh, for Lockdown to Zero. It's a campaign that is uh, pushing uh, for the... uh, re-establishing in the mindset of the public as well as everyone else that in actual fact uh, the uh, mantra around uh, living with the virus is completely unnecessary and uh, there are plenty of things that could be done and should be done that aren't being done uh, in New South Wales and uh, in workplaces and uh, if you want to be part of that campaign or find more out more about it, they've got a hashtag lockdown to zero, one word. Uh, they've got a website. Uh, and the next uh, webinar is going to be on the 1st of September and it is going to be focusing on uh, the sacrificing of uh, children by sending them back to school in the middle of a raging COVID pandemic. <laughs> Anyway, it was uh, fighting words and a fascinating discussion about uh, how actually uh, you realise just how uh, crippling listening to some of these press conferences really are because uh, you can feel like your uh, neurons are being moved and changed as you listen to the same message over and over again. It's it's quite appalling. But anyway, we're going to move on. We're going to go back to uh, what something that we covered last week, which was the IPCC report, uh, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They put out a report that says, yes, indeed, humankind is affecting the climate. And uh, I thought it would be worthwhile uh, to look at insurance companies because insurance companies are the canary in the mine and absolutely essential for underwriting the uh, capitalist system, in fact. And uh, we've got uh, Dr... Um, Carl Mallon on the line who's going to have a yarn about it because he's the Director of Science and Systems at the Climate Risk. G'day Carl, how are you? Oh, great Nanny, how about yourself? I'm good, yes, I'm glad to hear you and I'm glad that uh, you, we could talk. Uh, you, what, are you, what are you finding in regards to climate risk uh, as uh, climate change has actually been accepted uh, by, you know, the majority and that there's an understanding that it's uh, the rapidity of it is uh, human um, caused by humans. Yeah, I, I think obviously that you know all of these are just um, you know another um, a, a, another piece of evidence in 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 this in the step as if we needed it. You know, I think I think the scientific community has been there for a long time. I think um, I think. You know, broader society um, uh, has been there for a long time um, around the world, um, and I'd say that what's happened in the last eighteen months is really that, that the private sector, so governments, corporations—sorry, uh, not governments—you um, know, private companies, uh, listed companies, the finance sector has really um, taken this as the new reality, um, and. And then, you know, finally, we're we're, we're sort of in a, a situation where most governments have have sort of stepped up in some form. I think we all know that a lot of governments around the world can can manage two thoughts at the same time. You know, where they can say we're going to act on climate change, but still be doing stuff which is which is which is inconsistent with that. But um, at least in principle, they're signing up. And obviously, we know that Australia's 
somewhat um, somewhat uh, dragging dragging their heels on on this particular issue. So that's that's a landscape that we're in at the moment. Um, I guess that, that the main the main the main thing we've learned this time around is that things are probably a little bit worse than we thought. Yeah. Um, and that, as everyone knows, our window to act is now really starting to close. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, I looked at the uh, summary of the uh, particular report that uh, backgrounds this uh, conversation, uh, and it's incredibly constrained in scientific language because I'm assuming, one, because that's the nature of the panel, but also uh, it's a bit like a legal document. It's so difficult to actually get across uh, the fact that we're in, uh, we should be in disaster mode uh, because um business interests and governments uh so, i mean our government for example is wedded to fossil fuels effectively yeah look i think i think as a you know speaking in a in a personal capacity if you like you know when i look at this landscape and i look at the um we we're in a they call it the resource curse internationally and and it's it, it's this concept which is if a country has resources that you can dig up and sell your population becomes an impediment okay and that's when you see it's <laughs> <laughs> horrifying that's right, it's really bad. but it, it's basically it it's it's it, it you know if you're in singapore you don't have anything to sell that you can dig up so your resources your people so you invest in your people and so you want your people to be as smart and as uh, um, you know as 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 valuable as possible. So places like that, you know, invest invest in their people. And and so uh, you know, whereas if you're if you're in um, somewhere like Nigeria, which has lots of oil, what you don't want is your people getting in the way. And so you you know you I don't know you kill the the, the political activists and you tell everyone to get out of the way and you you know shove them into shanties while you just get the oil and dig it up and sell it in in australia we're in a, we're in an odd situation which is we have a you know what is a mature and reasonably healthy democracy um, with a lot of people with opinions and yet we have a lot of stuff that's worth digging up and selling and so uh, if you like what the the folks who've got want to get their hands on on that stuff have to do is negotiate with the dem- democracy and um, unfortunately that means that we get a lot of uh, information which is of dubious value and we we find that our governments elected governments do things which are not in the interests of the people they represent and you know one of them would be keeping fossil fuel plants alive long after they were supposed to be shut down when they are extremely expensive to run and renewables would be cheaper that's not in anybody's interest that that's not even being green uh, that that's not even being financially sensible that's 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 doing something where the interests being represented are not those of the population and i, I think now that's becoming clearer and clearer and it's being called out more and more but that's in a way that's our challenge now is that the, the sort of dying vestiges of self-interest are trying to assert their final bits of power, and um, when the economy really and and those who have capital have moved on, 
and and you know I I um, we're an Australian company, but almost three quarters of our work is overseas. So you know we work in in the US in. Uh, the UK, in Europe, we advise a lot of very, very big financial institutions and w- around physical risk. But I can tell you, they're, they are stampeding out of um, <laughs> high fossil fuel risk assets. They are so keen to get out. Um, and, you know, here we think that it's business as usual, but it is not. They are, they are trying to get out as fast as they possibly can. Mm. Oh, because uh, that's how it really works, isn't it? Um, it's all very well to say there's opportunities in chaos, you know, like so the idea that if you've got a, a, a tar, coal, uh, you know, those, you know, like you've created a, a, um, an environmental disaster, then of course there's money in cleaning up the disaster. But in actual fact, uh, cost is now outweighing the uh uh, usefulness of these industries. Well, look, you know, th- this is a bit where it's, you know, if if you, I mean, let's let's just unpick how how you would be thinking if you've got fossil fuel assets like you own coal mines in Australia. You're suddenly realising that Japan's winding down its its coal plans. Uh, China is planning to be net zero. Um, um, and probably it's only a matter of time before India follows. The, the, you're sitting there, and you're also realising that um, that the Europeans, your, the Americans, your big trading partners, are going to start putting tariffs. So the Europeans are now making steel that doesn't need coal. Oh. They're shipping green steel. Now we could do that because we've got we've almost got more renewable energy per capita than anyone else in the world. We have a small population on a massive country baked in sunshine with wind blowing all around our coast. It just does not get any better than this. We could be shipping green steel, green aluminium, green lithium, the whole lot. Um, Now, what that needs is needs fresh money. It needs fresh money to build a renewable-based steel plant. Now, if you're sitting on fossil fuels and you've got a lot of money in the bank, um, but you can see that your fossil fuel resources are going to be worth nothing soon, especially your ex- exports. What you're going to go on is saying, well, well, at least let's make sure that the Australian government and the Australian people is still using coal. And that's what, what's exactly what's going on. I mean, it's a set piece, which is you're losing your foreign markets. So let's let's force the Australian people to buy this um, because that's the, how we can hang on for as long as we possibly can, even though... Our economy needs to now switch to a low-carbon economy so that we can be competitive with the things we want to sell globally. So that's what's playing out. And and the problem we have is that the new companies don't have a lot of money. So if you're a renewable company, you're you're an up-and-coming. So what will happen, though, I think, and this is, you know, this is what gives me some hope, um, is that these renewable companies and you know, low-carbon companies are really getting beefed up overseas and they will hit Australia pretty hard at some stage and they will, I think they will end up just brushing stuff aside. You can already see it with the big investors because they're coming and they're saying, right, yep, we'll, buy, we'll invest in Australia. Coal, you've got to be kidding us. 
come up with something else. So when uh, things like our treasuries go off to raise bonds for infrastructure in um, in Australia, so, so they, what happens is our, our state governments go and try and raise money mm. overseas. They're going, and I know this firsthand, I mean, I know this by talking to people who go and do this, they're going and seeing, well, we've got a, a you know, a, a treasury bond for this state or that state, and they're saying, what's in it? And they're saying, basically, what they're hearing is, if it's not, if it's not green, we're not interested. Mm. If you put anything like fossil fuels or, you know, railways connecting coal mines, just not interested. Don't don't bring it to us. If, on the other hand, you come up to us with uh, wind powered you know, offshore uh, wind farm, yeah, or or you want to connect. A, um, you want to put in electrical infrastructure to open up wind farms or solar plants or in the electric outback, cars or stuff. electric cars, trains, electrification of lighting. I know this for a fact because I was speaking to one of the negotiators and they ended up putting a package of light rail, electrification of lighting, um, making water assets resilient to climate change. They put a bundle of that together. They took it to Europe. Um, they were trying to get a billion dollars, I think it like ju- just under a billion dollars. They ended up having two and a half billion dollars of subscribers wanting to buy it, as oh. in they didn't even have enough green stuff to sell because the demand was so high. So, so this is this is what this is where the the, the smart money is going, and so what you're going to find is a bit like Adani, is that no one will touch the the coal assets and the bit that is challenging for us as a democracy now is we've got to make sure that our governments don't put dumb money onto fossil fuels because that's basically the stuff's not worth anything. Um, They're too expensive, aren't they? This government's just too expensive. Well, it's, you know, the thing is that the smart money's not touching this stuff for a reason. And, and, you know, when, when, when the government says, oh, we're going to have a gas-led recovery blah, blah, blah. or we're going to underpin, just remember, all of us have to remember, that's my money. <laughs> yeah. And you're entrusted to spend my money well. And really, you have to challenge, do you have a right to put my money behind something which is not in my interest? You know, there's a word for that. And, you know, I won't say it on air, but they have a lot of trouble with it within South America. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to me, Dr. Carl. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a lovely weekend. You too. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we woke up believing we were in a time warp or more likely a time machine back in 2001 when the US of the UN of the US of the world assured us we had to invade Afghanistan and wipe out the Taliban women because all these Saudis had orchestrated and conducted an attack on the US of. True Blue Aussie through the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages, unable to get to war fast enough. A coalition of the killing invasion that worked a treat. 20 years of wasted time, wasted lives, wasted lands, wasted lies, justifications, war crimes, but trillions of dollars the merchants of death assure us were not wasted. 
yet top marks for initiative to the US of puppet president, or sorry, popular president, Ashraf Ghani, 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 who, as the Taliban women were moving in, pre-recorded an assurance to the nation that all was under control. Uh, which, from his point of view, it was, because by the time the assurance went to air, he was Ghani. Presumably with a huge percentage of the public purse awaiting him at his destination. It's the way, isn't it, with US of puppets eventually forced to flee their financial future guaranteed by taking the state purse with them under the protection of the US of which sadly couldn't protect the rest of the Afghani population, although it made a final contribution to their liberation by mowing a few down on the tarmac as it fled the country with its tail between its legs. Further proof, if more was needed, that might, might be right politically, extreme right politically, but not right morally. Of course, we only awoke back in 2001. For most Afghans, and particularly women, they have found themselves waking up in the 11th century. For our indigenous sisters and brothers, it may well remind them of Terra Nullius 233 years ago. The US of invasions, with True Blue Aussie swinging on its coattails, have proved such trained killing success stories, haven't they? And thus went the coalition of the killing. Mission accomplished, as war criminal George W. Bash the workers boasted 18 years ago. To give Ghani 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 credit, he said he had fled the country to prevent a flood of bloodshed. See? altruistic, thinking only of the people to the last. Prevent bloodshed, Ashraf. Yes, mine. Interesting that Ghani spent most of his life outside Afghanistan as an academic who specialised in failed states. <laughs> Practice what you preach. And despite yet another massive train killer defeat, the US of threatened the Taliban women with dire consequences if they prevented the fleeing US of warmongers from getting to the airport. Uh, uh, just what dire consequences? What could they do? They, they're so used to threatening people they forget when it sounds so hollow. On war criminals, see another alleged war criminal was charged last week and will be dragged before the war crimes tribunal in The Hague. No surprise, a black African, who may well be a war criminal, wait and see. But why don't we see the coalition of the killing war criminals from George W. through Barack to Donald to Joe, the current big supremo, from coalition acolytes, her most gracious majesty's home country, and true Blue war criminals dragged before the same court. Oh, oh, silly me, I forgot. The, the US of unilaterally legislates that it is illegal for its citizens to be charged with war crimes. Very, very smart legislation in the circumstances. Indeed, it also legislated is a crime to expose US of war crimes. So heinous, the accused have no right to plead not guilty. Guilty until proven guilty. OK, OK, the coalition of might have been a war crime, but it was all worthwhile. Big Supremo scuttled them more, Lash Sun, a.k.a. Scomo, told us it was worth it because we were fighting for freedom. And George W. Bash, the workers down under henchmen who obeyed the US Ob's orders, the aforementioned little bald-headed bloke, also assured us it was all worthwhile, but then he would, wouldn't he? Just not sure Scummo and the little bald-headed bloke are the most reliable commentators or experts at this point.
It's not quite back to the future, it's more future to the back, and the little bald-headed warmonger is doing just that, trying to protect his back. Look, why don't we go back to the future when rulers who declared war led the cannon fodder into battle? I reckon that'd do wonders for making them think twice. Well, well, making them think would be a start. And don't forget when they say freedom, they mean freedom of capital. That's what those cream of Troublewazzy youth, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party, love their families and dear little children, trained killers, trained kill and get trained killed to defend. And of course they must be trained to hate the families and dear little children of the other. The other they're trained to trained kill. On the strain killer, the Delta strain, the silent killer, a secondary problem, according to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, compared to the suffering under the pejorative dad socialist lockdown. Poor little kids, for instance, deprived of their playgrounds. Dear little children and their parents milling around having fun, fun, fun and spreading a little bit of COVID around the community. With that giant of the industrial union movement, the... Sorry, the uh, police association, note not union, like the shopping the workers association, not union. Anyway, the association's Wayne Gotcha, who attacked Dan for upsetting dear little children, said members of the constabulary would approach the playground ban with, like, compassion. Let's say that again. A copper says the coppers will do their job with compassion. The coppers were left speechless. One of Wayne's industrial militant members said his child burst into tears watching the telly news and hearing his playground would be closed. Playground bullies all over P1 was how the whopping sin brought its renowned objectivity to that story. Then next day, P1 screaming, so cruel. A genuine sad story, bloke who flew from Bangkok to see his dying mother in Melbourne but was held in quarantine in Adelaide and didn't see her before she died. Note Adelaide, a caring business class government. The delay, nothing to do with the pejorative Dan, but, oh, well, blame him anyway. So cruel, the man who reduces dear little children to tears. That icon of which we're all so patriotically proud, the big true blue Aussie, BHP, for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, says it is now a better place to invest in a lower carbon world after a $20 billion share-swapping deal that will see its oil and gas division now operate as would side with profits. Uh, so the merged entity will continue to produce oil and gas unabated? Uh, that's right. So how are you better placed on abating climate change if, if there is such a thing? Because the oil and gas will not be produced and flogged off under the big Aussie name. Uh, but wouldn't the environment be a lot better off if you, if you stopped drilling oil and gas altogether? Well, we did consider that option as one of several possibilities. Then why not adopt it? I can give you 20 billion reasons. Woodside, with profits, new CEO Meg O'Neill before profits, added that producing oil and gas unabated would allow it to, quote, continue to reduce costs and carbon.
<laughs> no, sorry, listener, she didn't explain the how a bit, so we've got no idea the, the carbon bit, that is. We can be sure they'll continue to reduce their costs, always blown out by the greed of lazy, avaricious workers. And this week, those lazy, avaricious workers were dancing in the streets and popping the corks as wage growth for the past year was a fabulous 1.7%. How's that for avarice? And while they're lipping it up, many of their caring employers barely doubled their profits. Why, poor old BHP announced a mere $20 billion or so profit, allowing them, this is so exciting, to increase their dividend to shareholders. And we can be sure those shareholders and the wise practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all in the boardroom would continue to be deeply, deeply concerned at slow wages growth. But try as they might, rack their brains as hard as they might, they just can't think of an answer. Although how can we persist with this slow wages growth myth when the streets are full of workers celebrating an exorbitant 1.7% annual wage growth? The My God We Admire Your Perseverance Award to all those in the caring business class government who bring such an even-handed approach to caring business class relations who would see that 1.7% as a threat to economic stability. Even-handed approach this week via the Troublawazi Competition and Consumer Commission. Remember the Die Union son Hayden, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, established by former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses set up to smash the evil construction unions, with the only subsequent victim is Honor himself after sexual harassment allegations. After during his totally neutral witch hunt inquisition accused of bias by attending a caring business class party fundraiser, declaring himself absolutely, totally unbiased. And only the most biased, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron cynic would suggest a deep, deep philosophical hatred of and desire to smash evil unions is bias. Well, they're still trying, as a case arising from the con mission hit the courts this week. ACCC claiming an evil construction union officer had engaged in cartel conduct during enterprise bargaining, a charge that could have landed him in the slot for 10 years. Unfortunately for the caring business class government, as the matter hit the court a mere six years after his honours travails, they were forced to withdraw all charges, mainly over little matters like a lack of evidence, lack of witnesses, and oh, they forgot to provide the union with documents they were ordered to provide. What bad luck. So the witch hunt still hasn't caught anybody, well, directly, other than the indirect destruction of his honour's reputation. So, Scummo and the team, good news, your My God We Admire Your Perseverance Award is on its way, and do pass on our regards to Tiny and his honour. Now, please don't attack me for this, Lister, but for once I have to agree with serial vexatious raver Clive Parmagina. And in fact, I'm pretty sure you'll agree with Clive as well. He, his latest paid P1 rant, you can't trust the Liberal and Labor parties, don't believe them. See? We can't disagree with that. But then he says, join the United Troublawazi Party. And that does stuff up his case completely. Finally, 
Words of wisdom from former Socialist Party world's greatest worst treasurer and big supremo Paul, pictured in a very, very, very expensive working class suit as part of the Troubler Aussie Capitalist Review celebrating its 70th birthday. Under the new philosophy of leadership, you proselytise good policy. He proselytised modestly. You educate the country to good policy. Obviously, Paul believed in vain we'd learn good policy from suffering under bad policy. Good morning. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Yes, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to be speaking now with Fiona McLeod uh, and she's the chair of the Accountability Roundtable. It's a body dedicated to keeping governments in Australia open, honest and accountable and I bet you they're doing uh, working overtime <laughs> and a former chair of Transparency International Australia. Now, she's just published through... Uh, Monash University Publishing uh, as part of their In the National Interest series. Not a long tome, about uh, 100 pages, um, a, a piece called Easy Lies and Influence. Hello, Fiona, how are you? Good morning, Annie. Yeah, um, oh, fascinating read, absolutely. I've been fuming for, ever, for quite a long time about the... Uh, a level of uh, rising corruption that's obviously uh, emanating from our federal government and our various uh, uh, instruments. Uh, But we've got plenty of uh, instruments that should be checks and balances that should be in in play. Uh, But let's go first to your basic contention that... uh, Everything around our government is related to the Thomas Hobbes social contract. Do you want to talk a little bit about that first? Well, sure. Um, Listeners may know that Thomas Hobbes' basic premise in terms of the social contract is that we give up our individual liberties and agree to be governed uh, by voting for them in return for the promise that they will use those powers for good instead of evil. Yeah, yeah. so what that means is that um, when you take office, a public office, such as being an elected parliamentarian, you won't use your powers to pursue personal gain, to reward your mates, to uh, line your own pockets, to give yourself advantage, business opportunities, uh, you know, uh, um, bending the laws to suit yourself. That This is a notion we call public trust, and it arises directly from that social contract. And unfortunately, and we're all getting mad about this, as you said, we're not seeing that. And it's boiling over into this endless frustration we have that they're just getting away with it. Yeah, yeah, it's very dangerous stuff. And uh, uh, not to mention that, uh, as you, my note taking from your, I mean, your your piece is so elegantly put together and it's so packed that, oh, you know, you so only much. need 98 pages to tell us the truth. Uh, the Australian Institute has uh, estimated that um, the corruption uh, within our system at the moment is costing $72.3 billion each year, which is 4% of the GDP. It's very expensive. It is, and it, and it's not just the cost. I mean, $72 billion, how much of the NDIS could we fund for that? How many 
hospitals and, and getting our aged care system right, could we do, use that money for, which is lining people's pockets? But we don't call it out. We don't call it corruption in Australia. We call it soft names like pork barrelling or rorting or, you know, um, th- this notion that somebody expects that they can get into power and look after their mates or themselves. We just turn a blind eye to it. And I think it's because we're so overwhelmed and we're just so fed up with the corruption that we we don't know what to do about it. We turn a blind eye to it in the end because we, we're just paralysed. Well, actually, someone said to me once that uh, some people don't listen to 3CR because they don't want to know how bad things are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, 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 your your piece says the same thing to me. Oh, well, that's great. So in in the book, Easy Lives and Influence, I consider the ways our governments have embraced corruption and favoured their own interests ahead of the public interest. So we're talking about lies, bribes, purchasing influence, rewarding those who contribute to campaign funding with their favourable treatment or advancement or appointment. And this has become standard operating procedure. And I reflect in the book on the way that corruption has become normalised in our country. We, we become used to the notion that our politicians are going to lie to us or not answer questions, just walk away from press conferences without giving us the truth. And the journalists are working this out, and some of them are very good at it, but others, it takes a while to work that out. And we saw that in America too, you know, the great beacon of democracy Trump lied so often in so many ways on so many things the journalists couldn't keep up with him. Plus he had, you know, a captive media who were repeating these lies over and over. You know, I won the election. Uh, And this fermented civil unrest. He told lies to the mob and um, encouraged them to go and seize power by force. Unthinkable. Well, you 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 you, you actually said that earlier. You said fighting for good uh, rather than evil. Sociopaths. You see, they're sociopathic. Well, well, this is sociopathic behaviour. It's the notion that once you are in power, you're untouchable, and uh, increasingly people are getting away with it. And so the book really calls it out and looks at the sheer number of revelations, the massive scale of rorting of public funds, and then the complete disconnect between each revelation that we hear, sports, rort, car park, walks, hello world, paladin, each revelation, and there being any consequence. And I'm not saying there wasn't rorting in the past, but we had a concept of ministerial responsibility which meant ministers were held to account. Yeah, yeah, but also it's a pattern. It's like the whole coverlet of this government is a rot, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, now, that's what it's, that's its uh, tenor. Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing billions of dollars of our funds squandered, but it also has an impact on uh, the fair markets. So say, say you and I have a coffee shop next door to each other and we're both busting our guts to make those coffee shops work and to try and um, earn ourselves an income. You suddenly score the brand-new coffee machine and outdoor furniture because you were a mate of the local politician and you contributed to their campaign, so you benefit for some grant. People understand that unfair commercial advantage that applies and is applying in the market. And we, we see how unfair it is and we see our working our guts out and yet, 
the reward goes to the person next door because of who they know or yeah. who they paid. And, and the accountability is uh, the rot. But before we get to the fact that this is the rot, um, oh, the, the, uh, you're, you've got a comprehensive uh, breakdown of specific uh, um, rorts. We'll call them rorts. Um, but there are a couple of really important things, like the public service is, are being infiltrated by um, Liberal Party toadies, effectively. So uh, political appointments into the public service is actually incredibly important. And the other one, which is uh, the employment of public servants, they're not public servants, by contract to labour, by a labour hire, which they no longer have the public service accountability clauses. They're not covered. Yep. Now, I should point out, I'm turning the cannons on the federal government in this book particularly, um, and uh, you might say, well, you're a former Labor candidate, so of course you'd do that. However, this sort of corruption infiltrates all parties at all levels of government. And I saw, I just heard the last piece you were talking about, Clive Palmer. Remember the lies that were told through the, through the election? He's calling out corruption, but mm. at the same time he's spreading misinformation about death taxes and those things, which have picked up during the election campaign. We've got no ability to stop those lies being told. And they do sway votes in the end because people don't know who to trust. That's fascinating, isn't it? The Electoral Commission, you point out, has no power to stop people telling lies during an election. It's it's not its job to vet paraphernalia and election material. What what it does is make sure the election is conducted in a free and fair way. But even then, you know, during the election campaign, there were signs being put up that mimicked the Australian Electoral Commission material by Liberals. I mean, terrible. It's absolutely outrageous. That's right. In an election in AEC... Um, livery, as you call it, which looked like the AAC yeah. material, they've got a direction in um, one of the Chinese languages saying, yeah. vote one liberal. And people walk in and they think, oh, I'm being directed by yeah. the AAC to vote liberal. It's just now, outrageous. And that's not even covering the outrage that is uh, uh, donations to... Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so what does a donation buy you? A donation buys you a seat on the Prime Minister's COVID Cabinet Committee to direct the way that funds, public funds are spent to ensure that we recover. And, of course, if you put a gas and fuel executive to chair that committee, he's going to recommend gas and fuel projects as the way to spend our way out of out of the economic slump we're in. It's pathetic. So, and the next thing that... Be, I mean, because we're running out of time, mm. uh, um, the... Uh, n- they're not just stealing, but putting national security at risk because they like to present themselves as being, you know, the uh, economic uh, good managers and, uh, uh, you know, where everything's about national security. But the business about the subs is just jaw-dropping. Uh, so people might not remember this issue about the submarines. And you, m- many people will have heard that we are billions of dollars over without rebuilding our submarines. Remember the election promise that was made initially by Tony Abbott to build submarines with a French company in Adelaide? That was There was no proper procurement process to go through that. Billions of dollars of public funds, which should have gone through a very tight procurement Yeah, because there is actually a system. Exactly. Exactly. There are systems and checks and balances, but if they're just being ignored, then 
there's very little we can do except hold them to account at elections. I mean, it was bad enough that it was supposed to be $20 billion in warfare, but uh, it's now uh, ballooning out to $124 billion. Yes. and if Unbelievable. Had, if you had looked at, if they had done any due diligence on corruption, they would have found extraordinary allegations. About fouls and... Yes, in, in relation to the French company, which is tied to the French government, that ultimately secured that contract. So it was a blatant purchase for votes. But I do give some hope in the book about yeah. the structures that we need in place and how we can repair this. And one of those things is, of course, the National Integrity Commission that was resisted by the federal government before the end of 2008. Surprise, surprise. But the crossbenchers then, remember, for a period of time had the balance of power and forced the government to commit to one. And we've been waiting nearly three years on the promise that we would have one. But the model the government's now put up is incredibly weak because it essentially protects parliamentarians and their staff from the same sort of scrutiny and the same sort of accountability as apply to law enforcement agencies. Yeah, I know. It's just extraordinary. It's very, it's really weird. And it's also... I mean, you know, the whole idea that it should be they should be allowed to get away with it. Uh, the This particular federal government has been using legislative powers to change the rules and the laws. I mean, even down to things like uh, being allowed to detain refugees forever. And, and the secrecy that surrounds that so that we don't know and deliberately don't know all sorts of things we should know in the name of national security. But so, so the Anti-Corruption Commission, which we have to have, or an Integrity Commission that we have to have, has to be a proper model. And beyond uh, establishing that Integrity Commission, there are a raft of measures that we need to restore, resource properly and put in place. Because corruption is a risk, as I said, for all politicians at all levels of government. The minute you are a candidate for election to public office, you need money. And so there's a that's a known risk. We know that people will take money to fund their campaign. And how do they ensure they take clean money? We have to have systems around campaign contributions and perhaps even have public funding for contributions so they're not constantly buying favours or being owed favours owing favours to those who have contributed to their campaign. Do you know there's mm. not even a code of conduct for members of parliament at the current time? Well, that, that was fairly well exposed by the uh, sexual uh, yes. um, attacks on people and the fact that the uh, staff that work at uh, parliament are so frightened about uh, their job security and so can't step forward. Yes, and so those staff are sackable without without reason, as are now senior public servants. And that just needs to sink in for a minute. The role of the public service is to act fearlessly and frankly to offer advice to government. But if you can be told that you can be sacked without cause, without notice, at a moment's notice, that must be an incredibly chilling effect on the senior public service. It's so, really, it's really disgusting. Actually, it's undermining our entire democracy. So there's a number of ways we need to fix it, and um, some of them have been committed to by um, 
Labor. Some of them have been committed to by the independents who are really leading the charge on this. So Helen Haynes has a bill up uh, for a National Integrity Commission with a number of protections in place. First, uh, championed by Cathy McGowan. Yeah. Is she, goodness me, was she, yep. was she an independent that was worth getting into Parliament? Helen Haynes, fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, Zali Stegall and others have been championing this too, and Vix Patrick has been pursuing freedom of information. Labor have come on board with a, with a strong National Integrity Commission and also a mechanism that will allow ministers who spend in their portfolios against the advice of the department. They've got to declare that. That's part of their policy, which is a, a good step forward. Yeah, yeah, it is a good step forward because, I mean, uh, each time some incredibly awful thing is made apparent, and this is not even going into what must be not apparent, uh, like the Mackenzie woman uh, uh, and, I suppose, uh, Christian Porter, you know, they're outed for something in particular and then they're promoted. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's right. just and bizarre. Exactly. I just want to make this point. Accountability and our trust in government, when they're asking us at this time to abate public health orders, to adapt our lifestyles, to address climate change, to take all sort of steps in our personal lives, that depends on trust. And if we don't trust our governments and the message they're giving us because we think it's all spin then it's very hard to persuade a population to comply with what they need to do for their own benefit, like lock, observe lockdown rules. Yeah, yeah, it's and a, a dis- disintegration of society for the benefit like, we, of a pathetic, pathetic group of people. If we're constantly being told uh, the whitewashing of the truth, if we constantly feel like we're being manipulated, then we're not listening and uh, it can boil over into that public unrest we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, pretty terrible. I, I, I'm I'm really glad to have read your uh, piece. Uh, as I said to people, it's it's called um, uh, Easy Lies and Influence, and it's part of the Monash University Publishing uh, series in the National Interests. And I. Uh, uh, you really should go and you should get you should get it and you should read it. Basically. Thanks very much, Andy. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for talking to me, Fiona. My pleasure. And that was indeed uh, my pleasure as well. That was uh, uh, Fiona McLeod, a very erudite person. Uh, she's done all the legwork. All you have to do is get the uh, piece, uh, Easy Lies and Influence. Not hard to read. It's about 98 pages. And she documents all these absolutely outrageous uh, if you'd forgotten all the rorts, uh, y- your blood will boil. I was reading them and I my jaw just dropped. I thought, I mean, I, I'd been collecting them in my head, but some of them even I didn't know. So anyway, uh, it's it's in your best interest to uh, look at the uh, piece, uh, Easy Lies and Influence. We uh, spoke to uh, Dr. Carl Mallon, who turned out to be a very interesting fellow, Director of Science and Systems at Climate Risk, who talked about uh, how... Uh, we're being led down a uh, 
a dead end with uh, coal and gas when it comes to financial uh, markets. Uh, and of course, <laughs> that's just besides the environment. Uh, we talked to Sister Susan, Colin, Colin, Sister Susan Connolly, who gave us an interesting update on the Bernard Caleri uh, case. And of course, this is the week that was uh, rounded up the week Kevin did uh, in a wonderful way. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And we will go out with, hmm, this is a really nice song and I have actually played it before, but we'll probably get to hear more of it. Sydney After Dark by Melanie Horsnell. Pretty lights and shiny things You think you're depressed But it's probably just Too much coffee in your tea Too much caffeine in your dreams Cars will drive too mad and fast Up and down King Street They don't understand where I'm coming from It's a 50k zone But they're taking over me Flash my lights but they got no control no control No control Pretty lights and shiny things And Sydney's such a pretty thing I'm waiting for the lights to change I'm thinking I should move away the cars will drive too mad and fast Up and down King Street They don't understand where I'm coming from they all got their dates and petrol station meetings Clandestine naked under fluoros And who knows Who knows The weather balloon said so It said so Pretty thing, waiting for the lights to change 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 Waiting You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.